Good morning. Good morning. My name is Peter Kroll. I'm one of the elders of our church. And this morning we proceed in our study of the book of Hebrews. We're in Hebrews chapter 12, starting at verse 12. Which, if you have one of the church Bibles, we have some Bibles available out in the lobby. It's on page 948. So how are you doing? For real. I know this is church, but it's okay to be honest here. Really. So how are you doing? Okay. All right. Thanks, buddy. I know at least some of the truth about your illness and your recent surgeries. I know about strife inside the home. I know about strife outside the home. I know the semester is about to get really busy for some of you, and I know research is taking longer than you expected for others. I know some of your relationships are not where you wish they'd be. I've heard about the horrific Hamas terror attacks, and I know about the tensions of the coming election. I know about stress, anxiety, worry, and exhaustion. I know some of you are especially lonely, and others of you are close to hopeless despondency. Now, if you're bearing up just fine and you're delighting in the joy of the Lord, I am thrilled. May the Lord bless you and keep you in his joy. And maybe the Lord has you here to help provide friendship to some others who are struggling. Because if you're feeling rattled and discouraged, I've got some good news this morning for you from the Lord Jesus Christ. That good news is that your despondency is treatable. Your despondency is treatable. And for the children, if you haven't heard that word despondency before, I'm going to use it a lot this morning because it's a really important word for us today. It just means you're so sad that you feel like giving up. That's what despondency is. I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with you if you're feeling despondent this morning. And I'm not promising that your despondency will ever be completely eradicated before Jesus returns. I'm not saying those things. But what I am saying is that your despondency is treatable. That you can learn to cope with it. That's the main thing I hope to show you this morning. And once we get that general idea, the text will then prescribe two treatments you can see in your outline. Remember where you are and take note of who is speaking to you. That's where we're heading this morning in Hebrews chapter 12. Let me pray and ask God's help that we could understand 
his amazing word. Our Father, we come before you today, some of us, in your joy and delighting in your world and others of us discouraged, even to the point of feeling despondent. And so we ask that you would draw near to us and help us, give us eyes to see the treatment you've provided for us in your word. May we see Jesus and hold fast to him. And may we rest in you. Lord, we don't know what you are doing in our lives or in the world around us. But we know that you are good and you are faithful. And you are deserving of worship. Help us now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. The first thing the Lord wants to show you this morning from our text is simply that your despondency is treatable. So what do you do when being a Christian is just hard? Here we are in verses 12 through 17. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with Tears. And you know what it's like to feel despondent, don't you? I know at least some of you do. It's hard to set your hands to the work God has given you. You'd rather find anything else for them to do. And your knees buckle under you. Or at least you just don't think you can get off the couch. You know that the New Testament calls you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling in Christ, but you've grown spiritually lame, not because you're not able to get walking, but because your motivation just isn't where it used to be. Do you know what those days are like? Well, the Lord knows. He sees you. He cares. And he speaks to you through the pen of this author, ordering you in verse 12 to lift those drooping hands and to strengthen those weak knees. But I'm tired. But Lord, I've tried it. And it's not going so well. I keep getting smacked down for it. The Lord gets all that. He knows how difficult it is. Do you see his intentions? They're they're right there for you at the end of verse 13. He's not commanding you into action in order to make it worse. He does not want you put out of joint. No, he's after your 
healing. Here's the thing. When following Jesus is hard, we tend to seek out all kinds of distractions. We want something to numb the pain. We want something to restore a sense of equilibrium and self-respect. And this text addresses at least three ways that people, even today, deal with the pain of following Jesus. I want to briefly show you how it addresses those who turn to peace-breaking, those who turn to thrill-seeking, and those who turn to faith-deconstructing. Okay, let me walk through these first. Peace-breaking. Peace-breaking. There's a tendency I have that I suspect many of you share to get snippy when I feel like life is out of control or I feel disrespected or things aren't going the way they ought to go. Because I've lost my bearings in one area of life, I sure as heck am going to retake control in another place so I can grow irritable, I can become hard to live with, and the tension just simmers until poison squirts from my mouth. If you are like me in this, the Lord commands you and me in this text to stop doing that. Okay? Don't deal with your pain by letting it simmer or by taking it out on others. Verse 14 says, strive for peace with everyone. You see that? Strive for peace. There's something worth fighting for and it's peace. This takes conscious effort and hard work. So maybe anger and backbiting isn't your thing. Maybe you're more of a thrill seeker. So you're not, you're not just about the peace breaking. Maybe you're more about thrill seeking. That's the second painkiller of choice for some. You've got all this pain from following Jesus, which if I haven't mentioned it yet, is hard. And you need some way to dull that pain. So maybe your solution of choice is to numb the pain with pleasure. You know, find something, anything that makes you feel some happiness again and stick with that. Well, if this is you, then this text commands you to stop doing that. Don't deal with your pain by numbing it with pleasure. In verse 16, he says, See to it that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. Do you know about Esau? He's a character in the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible. This guy was out hunting in the field and he got so hungry that he begged his brother for a bowl of soup. His belly's hunger was so important to him in that moment that the stew looked too good to pass up and he was willing to sell his birthright just to satisfy his appetite, to dull the pain. That birthright was the promise of God to bless this family among all the families of the earth. But you know what? 
Whatever the promise is of God that he's made towards you, it's hard to live under the promise of God without seeing it or experiencing it fully. So Esau dealt with the pain of that through food and, as this text says, through sexual misbehavior. Friends, don't do that. Don't do that. As with Esau in verse 17, when the promise eventually becomes a reality, you'll wish you had held on to it, but it could be too late. So some of us deal with the pain of following Jesus by getting angry and seizing control. We are peace breakers. Others deal with it by self-medicating through physical and sensual pleasure. We are thrill seekers. But yet others try a third tactic. The third tactic is to let go of this Christianity thing altogether and try out some different options instead. These are the people today who talk about deconstructing faith. And in verse 15, he addresses them. He says, he wants to make sure that we allow no root of bitterness to spring up and cause trouble. Now, this is easy to misunderstand because he's actually not addressing the problem of a bitter spirit within the heart of a Christian. It sounds like that's what he's saying to us. That's how we often read this. And that's a very real problem that needs to be dealt with. A bitter spirit in the heart of a Christian. But that's not what he's talking about here. This phrase he uses, a root of bitterness, the ESV actually does us the honor of putting quotes around it to signal, hey, this is like a phrase that he's using. He's borrowing it from Deuteronomy chapter 29 in the Old Testament, verses 18 and 19, where Moses defines a root of bitterness. He uses that exact phrase to define, quote, a person who, upon hearing the words of God, says in his heart, I shall be safe, and goes and worships other gods. So you see, a root of bitterness, he's not addressing a bitter spirit within the heart of a Christian. He's addressing a person in the Christian community who wants to start exploring other gods. That's what the root of bitterness is. So when Hebrews 12 verse 15 says that we must ensure that no root of bitterness springs up causing trouble and defiling many, it's saying that we must be careful not to give up on Jesus by going and trying out other gods, false religions, or worldly philosophies. Don't let that happen. But if we're honest, how close have you come to doing that or giving it a try? How many of us have seriously considered throwing in the towel on Jesus? Just a few weeks ago, I spoke with an old friend of mine who was deeply, deeply wounded by his church. He is exhausted by the cost of following Jesus. And he's made a home for himself and his wife alone in the woods of Appalachia. 
He hasn't yet given up on Jesus, and for that I'm grateful. But he's burnt out and weary, having no hope that the people of God will ever feel like family to him again. Friends, this is what I mean when I say that this text speaks to your despondency. I don't use that word to describe the annoyance of getting up early when you could have slept in on a Sunday morning. I'm talking about that feeling that following Jesus was good while it lasted, but now you're not so sure. The cost of trusting Jesus and serving his people is so high that I've got to be peace breaking. I'm just angry and I'm on a short fuse all the time. Or I've got to go thrill-seeking. I have to find some pleasures to dull the pain. Or maybe I'm deconstructing. I'm ready to give up on Jesus and go try something else. Please understand that the message of Hebrews 12 is that your despondency is treatable. This text urges you to lift those hands and to strengthen those knees. In other words, don't keep doing what you're doing, but do something different. Now, the Lord does not want you to get bent beyond the breaking point. He wants, as I mentioned in verse 13, he wants you to be healed. So this doesn't mean that you deal with your despondency by painting on smiles and pretending on Sunday mornings or any other day of the week. He's talking about finding ways to really cope with it. Now, that's easy to say, but it's challenging to execute. So to persuade you that your despondency is in fact treatable, he offers a somewhat extensive plan for treating it in the rest of the chapter. Notice at the beginning of verse 18, that little word, for... You see, that signals further reasons or motivations for straightening things out and holding on. That plan boils down to two things. Remember where you are and take note of who is speaking to you. Let me explain these two things in order. But as I do, I'll warn you up front that the Lord's prescribed treatment is probably going to hurt. I won't lie to you. Unlike the surgeon who lied to me when he had to re-break my broken finger when I was like 10 years old. Oh, he said, this won't hurt. And he lied. I'm not going to lie to you. But he did that so it could heal properly. And our God, out of his great love for us, does not hold back the treatment that will save our lives. First, remember where you are verses 18 through 24 for you have not come to what may be touched a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them for they could not endure the order that was given if even a beast touches the mountain it shall be stoned indeed so terrifying was the sight that moses said i tremble with fear but you have come to mount zion 
and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Friends, your despondency is treatable if you would remember where you are. Now, before he can discuss where you are in verses 22 to 24, he has to first clarify where you are not in verses 18 through 21. So the place you have not come is, verse 18, a place that can be touched. A place with fire, darkness, and whirlwind. A place that was so terrifying that people didn't even want to get close to it. And Moses himself, the great giver of God's law, trembled with fear. Here he's referring to Mount Sinai in the book of Exodus. It was the place where God appeared to the people of Israel to activate his contractual covenant relationship with them. Now, why does this, this author have to specify that you have not come, the place that you've come to is not the place where the Jewish people first met God for themselves. I think it's largely because the despondency, the particular despondency facing the original audience of this book was a despondency triggered by intense pressure to leave the Christian faith and go back to Judaism. So the author reminds the people of what the Jewish faith had to offer them. Okay, despite many good things, there was a tremendous distance between people and God such that they could only get close to Him by not really getting too close to Him. And why would they want to go back to that when what they have now is better? And I think the message for us today is a simple question. Friend, If you let go of Jesus and you give up on this Christian thing, how do you, how do you expect that to go for you? How do you expect that to go for you? Do you think you can find any more grace in another religion or philosophy than you have found in Jesus Christ? Please tell me, which religion gives you a God who knows what it's like to be human and who sticks with you to the end? Which other religion is there who gives you a God who pays your debt for you instead of holding you captive to constant fear and uncertainty? This is one reason why I have very little interest in letting Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses even get past first base, first base with me on my front porch. 
do you, I tell them, do you really think I would give up on a God who dealt with my sin and who bought and paid for me with his own blood in exchange for a God who makes me have to keep paying and paying by working hard to make him happy? You're insane if you think that's a fair trade. And what if we're not talking about other religions, but we're talking about giving up on Christ well, for the religion of secularism? Well, you, you've only to look at the state of our world today to see what happens when a generation of people care only to follow their own hearts. We get a place where disagreement is not tolerated, where racial injustices are prolonged, where horrific acts of violence are defended and justified. Now, why would I want that? That's not where I've come to. That's not where you've come to. When you have pledged allegiance to Jesus Christ, that is not where you have come to. In these verses, the author is saying that those, verses 22 through 24, where have you come to? He's saying that those who are loyal to Christ have been made part of God's family. They have joined his divine heavenly council. They are part of the heavenly assembly together with both the angels and those who have already died in faith. And you know what? You can't see these realities yet. You can't touch them. He says in verse 18, you have not come to something that you can touch. You can't see it, but why do you have to see it in order for it to be true? I can't see my marriage as a physical, visible thing, as though there were a rope attached between Aaron and myself. I can't see that, but I can see the effects of my marriage in our love, our companionship, our partnership, making it a very real thing indeed. Similarly, you can't usually see angels and heaven just yet, but this text says you are already there. That's because heaven is not a location you travel to when you die. Heaven is more like the environment in which you already live and move and have your being because Jesus has already begun bringing it to earth. That's what heaven is. And this is very good news indeed because we've seen a few times already in Hebrews that heaven is decorated forever with the splashed blood of Jesus. That's the decor. And here in verse 24, we know we're told that this blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Now, Abel was the first victim of murder in human history. In, in Genesis chapter 4, Genesis, the account there says that after he was murdered, his blood cried out for justice and for vengeance. And friends, we've seen in Hebrews, Jesus' blood does not speak of justice or vengeance. His blood speaks of mercy and forgiveness. That is where you have come, friends. You can't see it yet, but you'd better believe it. 
Because that's where you are when you pledge allegiance to Jesus. You are already in heaven enjoying the mercy and the intimacy of God in Christ. Remember that and your despondency is treatable. Let's say life has rattled you and you feel hurt or disrespected. This doesn't make that go away. You're tempted to get angry and seize control or to dull your pain through pleasure. You're down in the dumps. You're not sure what to do about it. What can you tell yourself in that moment to treat your despondency? Well, that's the time to talk to yourself and say, Self, remember where you are. You're not in the same place you used to be. Even at this moment, you are in heaven with the angels and the Lord Jesus. Man, it sure doesn't look like it. But that's what God has told me. Will I now act as though he was telling the truth? Remember where you are. That's only the first way to treat your despondency. The second, point number three, is to take note of who is speaking to you. Verse 25. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth But now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made. In order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Friends, the second way to treat your despondency is to take note of who is speaking to you. Verse 25 says it straight out. Do not refuse him who is speaking. You see, when angels spoke God's law to Moses, people who refused it would be kicked out of the community or they would die. But those who refuse what Jesus now speaks from heaven suffer a fate even worse than death. They suffer, verse 29, unquenchable, consuming fire. Why does this matter? Because typically our despondency arises from the fact that life has rattled us. Things are hard here and now. Did you know that the reason why things are hard here and now, the reason why life rattles us is because, verse 26 says, Jesus is in the business of shaking heaven and earth. 
That's why life rattles us. People in our culture seem at times to have lost their minds because Jesus is shaking them all up. Governments want more and more control over people's lives because Jesus is shaking them up. You see, it's normal to feel rattled. That is the standard Christian experience. That is simply what it means for Jesus to be the King of Kings. So in the midst of your despondency, it's crucial to remember that this is what it's like to experience God's will being done on earth as it is in heaven. The thing Jesus commanded us to pray for. The powers of heaven and the kingdoms of the earth cannot stand before this king. So when he shakes them, they freak out and try to get a sense of security back. I know you've seen what happens, what, what lengths they'll go to when that happens. To give just one example, you probably saw what happened when Roe versus Wade got overturned last year. People just went ballistic. The people who claimed to support choice wanted to severely limit the choices people had by mocking and intimidating them into obedience to one accepted narrative. So please, take note of who is speaking to you. He's not just anybody. He is the king of kings. And all other contenders must fall before him. He is shaking it up so that will be so. And what that means is when powerful people try to bully you into their way of thinking, just remember that from the breath of Jesus' mouth come blasts of fire. It's worth it to keep listening to him and not refuse him. When you feel small, unheard and powerless because the township council won't pay attention to your ideas. Remember that the king of heaven and earth has already invited you to join his council. And he now speaks on your behalf and as a result, mountains tremble and kingdoms fall. What does that mean for you and for me? Let me offer two closing applications from verse 28. He tells us right here what he wants us to do about it. First, let's be grateful. Let's be grateful. The Lord Jesus, who shakes not only earth, but also heaven, now speaks mercy on your behalf, and he has granted his loyal followers citizenship in a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Yeah, the world tries to make Christianity look stupid. And... Okay, I, I concede. Sometimes they're right about that because it seems like many Christians sure do prefer to act stupid a lot of the time. I'm among them. But you know what? It doesn't matter. No matter how shaken or stupid Christians are, the fact remains that the kingdom Christ began building will continue to dominate the kingdoms of the world until the very last day. So be grateful you get to be a part of it. Sorry that you've been shaken in the process, but that's what it means to be a citizen of this kingdom. 
Let's be grateful. Second application. Verse 28. Let's worship. Let's worship. Friends, our God has done this. He's shaking everything up. He will continue doing this. He has spoken. He has brought you into his confidence. What kind of a God would do that? Either he's out of his mind or he's got such complete control over the world, all of it, that you can't mess it up. Let's worship that God and not the God we invent for ourselves to make us happy all the time. So friends, please know that your despondency is treatable. It may not ever disappear, but you can learn to cope with it. How do you do that? Well, if you are holding fast to Jesus Christ, remember where you are already in heaven with your Lord Jesus. And take note of who it is speaking to you. The King of Kings, the one who will continue shaking governments and kingdoms until all fall before him and all the earth gives him the honor due his name. And the kingdom is the Lord's. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, Lord, you are the majestic one on high and you have entrusted to your son, Jesus, all of heaven and earth, all authority in heaven and on earth. And Jesus, we praise you. We are so grateful that you sought fit to place us in your kingdom. And so we worship you now as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Please strengthen us. Help us to face the brutal facts with our despondency and all the evil ways we try to deal with it. May we instead remember where we are and take note of who is speaking to us, that we might listen to you and not refuse you when you command us to stop doing all that other junk. Help us to trust in you and to hold fast, though our despondency may not disappear until you return. May we learn to live with it and cope with it as we walk with you step by step, lifting these drooping hands of ours and strengthening these knees that have grown so weak. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.